humanitarian crisis is getting more and more serious. No food, no drinking water. Israeli bombing in southern Gaza is making life there dire and dangerous and raising humanitarian alarms. The latest from Israel and Gaza. For Saturday, December 9th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll look at Donald Trump's efforts to televise his federal January 6th trial, even as he tries to delay it. Plus, the NBA in-season tournament championship takes place tonight. Once you started to see the players buy into it, and then the fans bought into it, it was like, all right, well, something is different here. Like, this is actually working. And you will get a sentimental feeling when you hear our interview with Brenda Lee, whose song has topped the Billboard charts. Lord, has it been good to me. I never thought that a Christmas song would be my signature song. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Israeli military is calling on residents of Gaza's old city to evacuate amid fierce fighting in its historic center. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more. 22-year-old Mustafa Shahawani is among tens of thousands of Palestinians estimated to have remained in Gaza City and the north. He said his family did not want to leave their home and don't think anywhere else in Gaza is safer. They're surviving on one cup of water and one serving of rice a day. Residents are burying their dead in mass graves in between buildings. On Friday, during a brief lull in fighting, he found Gaza's most historic landmark in ruins, the centuries-old Omari Mosque. An Israeli official told NPR the military targeted the mosque because militants used a tunnel shaft there. Israeli bombardment continues across Gaza. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Climate activists at the United Nations Climate Conference in Dubai say there are signs the negotiations are making the oil and gas industry nervous. And here's Nathan Rod has more from Dubai. The statements from climate activists come in response to a letter leaked to reporters that was sent by OPEC, the massive oil and gas cartel comprising some of the largest fossil fuel producing countries in the world. The letter reportedly urged members and allies to reject calls at the climate summit to adopt language aimed at phasing out the use of fossil fuels. That's been one of the most contentious issues here in Dubai, with some countries, including the U.S., encouraging the U.N. to approve language that would signal a needed shift away from climate warming energy sources like oil and gas. Adopting that language will require consensus from the nearly 200 countries at the summit, which is scheduled to end Tuesday. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Dubai. The Texas Supreme Court has temporarily stayed a lower court ruling that would have allowed a pregnant woman whose fetus has a fatal diagnosis to have an emergency abortion. Olivia Aldrich from member station KUT has more. Kate Cox received a temporary restraining order from a district judge Thursday allowing her to have the procedure. But Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton petitioned the state's Supreme Court to reverse that order, saying the judge had abused her discretion. Paxton also penned a letter threatening liability to any hospital or doctor who facilitates an abortion. The higher court temporarily halted the judge's order late Friday night, but has not yet issued a ruling on the matter. Lawyers who represent Cox at the Center for Reproductive Rights say they hope the Supreme Court will quickly deny Paxton's request, since urgent medical care is at stake. I'm Olivia Aldridge in Austin. And a pregnant woman is also suing the state of Kentucky over access to abortion. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. The National Weather Service has issued a flood watch for eastern Massachusetts from tomorrow afternoon through Monday evening. Forecasters say heavy rain could cause rivers, creeks, streams, and poor drainage areas, as well as urban areas, to flood. More on the forecast coming up. The body of a decomposing infant wrapped in a blanket was found early this afternoon in New Bedford. A walker made the discovery along a path near the water at Fort Tabor. The infant's body was taken to the Massachusetts Medical Examiner's Office. State and New Bedford police are investigating. Harvard's President Claudine Gay is apologizing for her remarks during this week's contentious congressional hearing about campus anti-Semitism. WBUR's Max Larkin reports that students say Gay sought to plot a difficult course with freedom of speech in mind. On Capitol Hill Tuesday, Republican Representative Elise Stefanik of New York suggested that pro-Palestinian chants heard at Harvard threaten genocide against Jews. Gay condemned the chants, but wouldn't promise unequivocally to punish their use. Guillermo Hava is a senior at Harvard. He said pro-Palestinian students like him are in no way calling for violence, and that Gay fell into a political trap. And the university finds itself in a position where it can either opt to play along with the bad faith attack or it can choose to refute it. And instead, Claudine Gay in front of Congress did neither. Gay's answer sparked shock and disappointment among Jewish students, alumni, and faith leaders. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The Bruins defeated Arizona this afternoon at the TD Garden by a score of 5-3. to three. As I mentioned, the National Weather Service has issued a flood watch for Eastern Mass., from tomorrow afternoon through Monday evening. Rain will overspread the area tomorrow afternoon and become heavy. Rainfall totals could be 2 to 3 inches north and west of I-495. Wind gusts could reach 50 to 60 miles per hour and could reach 70 miles per hour on Cape Cod and the islands. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Israel's offensive in Gaza continues with heavy bombing from the air and troops fighting on the ground. Israeli Air Force fighter jets also attacked a series of targets of Hezbollah in Lebanon, and Hezbollah has been firing back into northern Israel. United Nations officials are warning of a breakdown in humanitarian aid for more than 2 million Palestinians caught amid all of this fighting. We go now to NPR's Eleanor Beardsley, who's in Tel Aviv. Hey, Eleanor. Hi, Scott. Tell us what you've heard from Gaza today. Well, the U.N. agency coordinating humanitarian relief in Gaza says they're dealing with a potential for a complete breakdown of public order. Thomas White, head of the U.N. relief agency in Gaza, said, quote, we are hanging on by our fingertips. NPR heard from its producer in Gaza, Anas Baba. He said the bombing is intense in the southern towns of Khan Yunus and Rafah. Rafa is packed with hundreds of thousands of displaced Gazans, and he said there's nowhere left to even put a tent. Here he is. The humanitarian crisis is getting more and more serious. No food, no drinking water, even no, like the basics for the babies and the mothers, just like the diapers, the baby milk. And you know, Baba said he's been interviewing people who say 
Hamas has not been effective. They're underground. It's the people who are being killed. Yeah, and on that note, Israel says it's captured hundreds of Hamas militants, and now we have seen images of of some of the people captured stripped down to their underwear. What can you tell us about the reaction to that scene? Well, right. The Arab world has expressed shock and outrage. Um, We actually submitted questions to Israel's defense ministry, and they got back to us. And they said, when you're trying to, you know, destroy Hamas's military capabilities in an active combat zone, it's often necessary for detainees to hand over their clothes to make sure they're not concealing weapons or explosive vests. Uh, The ministry said detainees are given back their clothes when it's possible to do so, and that they said they are treating these individuals in accordance with international law. But NPR has confirmed at least one of those people in the videos, in the images, was a journalist and has heard from people who have actually recognized family members in the group of men, and they say they are definitely not Hamas. My colleague Leila Fadel spoke with a United Nations aid administrator in the U.S., Hani Almadoun, and when he saw the pictures, he recognized a member of his family. Here's what he told her. They're a horror show. You know, you see these and you think like, oh, they must be some... uh bad people or, you know, and then you see your brother there just scared for his life, stripped naked in the, close to naked and, you know, in the blistering cold. So he saw his brother and he also saw a few of his cousins being held captive and he says they were picked up in their homes. I mean, what what are the Israeli people that you've spoken with saying about the the war and all of this? Well, it's like a split screen, Scott. Israelis and Palestinians are not looking at the same thing. You're not seeing a lot of images of the bombing of Gaza and Palestinian suffering on Israeli TV. As one Israeli woman put it to me, we're certainly not seeing what the rest of the world is seeing. The Israelis are absolutely traumatized by October 7th. They still have hostages. They're still sheltering from Hamas rockets. They really see Hamas as an existential threat. I spoke with Israeli scholar Danny Rubenstein, a lifelong Arab specialist who has worked for peaceful coexistence. And here's what he told me. The Jews will tell you that we are very, very hurt by the October 7. You you are not you don't feel our sadness and our pain and and the Arabs will say the same. You don't feel any solidarity with the people in Gaza that they are killing all over. So there's less and less understanding between the Jews and Arabs. And Scott, I think that's the best way to summarize the feelings here. That's NPR's Eleanor Beardsley in Tel Aviv. Eleanor, always good to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you. This is a persecution. Felony violations for national security laws. We need one more indictment. Criminal conspiracy. To close out this election. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It's time for Trump's trials, our weekly take on the multiple cases former President Donald Trump is facing, all while running for president again. This week, we're focusing on the January 6th federal election interference case that'll be held in D.C., led by special counsel Jack Smith. And as of right now, it is set to be the first case to go to trial, scheduled to begin in March. And even as Trump's legal team tries to delay it, it's also pushing for the trial to be televised, which would be an enormous departure from how federal cases typically go. We're joined now by NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Scott. And NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thanks for being here. Hey there. 
So the Trump team, along with some media outlets, are asking for this D.C. January 6th trial, which, again, as of right now, would be the first trial up. They want it to be televised. What are the legal arguments for and against putting cameras in a courtroom? Because it seems to me this is something that just doesn't happen on the federal level. It doesn't happen on the federal level. There's actually a federal rule that prevents this kind of broadcasting of court proceedings. And uh, the Judicial Conference, which is the big body of judges, federal judges who run the system, as late as September of this year, once again, thought about these issues and just said no. That said, there's a major media coalition out there who's talking about uh, what a grave disservice it would be to American democracy and to voters not to televise this trial. They call this trial maybe the most important criminal trial in the history of the republic. Mm -hmm. And they say that the best antidote to misinformation and manipulation of the public and the voters is to let people listen and see for themselves. And the Justice Department is super, super opposed to it. They think that Donald Trump could turn this into a carnival-like atmosphere. They talk about the possible threats to witnesses uh, and people who might be called to testify in this case and other cases down the line. And they say there's just no evidence that this needs to happen or should happen. This seems very unlikely. Is, is, Is that the right way to think about this? I think it's really unlikely. Think about some of the major trials we've had in the last, you know, 20 years or so. The trial of the Boston Marathon bomber, uh, the trial of Timothy McVeigh, who bombed the Oklahoma City uh, federal building, and the two recent trials of leaders of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers in connection with January 6th. None of them were televised or broadcast live. Domenico, what's the political calculus here for Trump? I mean, Trump's the reality TV guy. I mean, he wants to take it back to the 90s. The 90s are cool again. So, you know, he wants all the big show trials, but he wants to do it in a way that he feels is going to help him politically, right? I mean, the government's accusing Trump of, as Kerry says, wanting to have a carnival-like atmosphere, of wanting to play politics, of wanting to turn these into show trials. And they're right. I mean, Trump wants to make the case before voters, basically, make his arguments for why these cases are phony, made up, witch hunts, hoaxes, whatever. But I have to say, politically, this works much better in March than it does in August for Trump. Because when you look at the political calendar, March is when the primaries are going to be happening. It certainly helps him with his base. But whether or not that helps him with a general election audience, remember, his brand has been pretty toxic with general election voters and, you know, elevating himself and showing this trial. I'm not sure it's going to be something that's going to help him, whether he thinks it will or not. And there, there is one irony here to point out that on one hand, Trump's legal team is asking for this to be televised, seems to want to have this public fight. But on the other hand, this week appealed a ruling about the the scope of his immunity as, as a former president in an attempt to delay this trial. Delay remains the most important strategy at Trump's disposal, and it remains to be seen whether the federal appeals court in D.C. is going to act on that appeal in a super speedy fashion or whether it might endanger the March 4th trial date next year in this January 6th case in D.C. I think Trump has a three D's strategy, which is dismiss, delay, distract. He tries to dismiss first. If he can't get that, he's trying to delay. And if he can't do that, then he's going to distract All right, we're going to shift gears here and talk about a few cases that are outside of those core four criminal cases that we mostly focus on here. These are cases where Trump is not the defendant, but they revolve around the fake electors in the 2020 election. Uh, Domenico, start off by reminding us who these fake electors were and how this fits into the Trump team's broader scheme to try and overturn that election. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a a phrase that can be kind of esoteric and like be confusing for people. So just let me lay it out because electors are really the ones who 
actually cast votes for the president. We have an electoral college, but these aren't supposed to be rogue agents. You know, these are supposed to be people who represent how the vote went in each state. They're proxies for the people's vote. Based on the vote share in each state, people are selected by parties and candidates. Uh, they're known as slates. Well, what Trump tried to do in multiple states is file fake elector slates and say that they actually represent the votes of people and that he won in multiple places that he didn't win. I mean, mm -hmm. that just didn't go well. And now there are multiple investigations civil and criminal across swing states. Some people have already been charged, like in Georgia, uh, and other states are holding out the possibility of launching criminal probes across a lot of different swing states. And Carrie, we had updates in two of those key states that decided the election last time around, Wisconsin and Nevada. Yeah, let's start with Nevada. Six people have been charged by uh, Nevada's authorities with um, crimes, basically for signing up for this uh, this plot and then sending phony information to Washington, to federal authorities. Remember, this was a key part of the alleged scheme to try to lean on Vice President Mike Pence to delay that certification on January 6th. And it really matters. It matters not just in the federal case, but also in numerous swings states like Domenico said. And we also had an important settlement this week in Wisconsin with a fake electors there. This was a civil case, not a criminal case. But the import of this settlement is that all of these people who, who settled have agreed not to serve as electors again in 2024. And they signed on to the idea that Joe Biden is the legitimate winner of the 2020 election. It doesn't sound like a big deal three years later, but it actually is the idea that they put the lie to this bogus theory that they were part of. That was NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Thank you, Carrie. My pleasure. Also joined by NPR Senior Political Editor and Correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thanks, Domenico. Pleasure as always. And just a flag, next week, Trump is back on the witness stand testifying in that New York civil fraud trial, this time in his defense. We will talk all about it next week. <laughs> You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us on this Saturday. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with a curated selection of organic groceries, natural body care and supplements, and bulk refillery. CambridgeNaturals.com. And We Need a Vacation, with over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at WeNeedAVacation.com. It is 49 degrees in Boston at 518. WBUR supporters include Volante Farms, with their annual fundraiser for the Home for Little Wanderers. You can donate today, in person or online, for a match from Volante. VolanteFarms.com. And the lyric stage with Ken Ludwig's The Games Afoot. This comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th. LyricStage.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The head of the University of Pennsylvania has quit amid backlash over her testimony on Capitol Hill about anti-Semitism on campus. Israeli fighter jets are striking parts of Gaza it had described as safe while telling Palestinians to head south to evacuate. This as the situation deteriorates, hunger is growing, and people say they are in desperate conditions. 
Former tennis star and current ESPN analyst Chrissy Everett says she's been diagnosed with cancer for a second time. And New York is overrun with Santas today for the annual Santa Con charity pub crawl. I'm Janine Herbst, and you're listening to NPR News from Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The NBA Cup is on the line tonight, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. The NBA Cup is a brand-new trophy, and it'll be awarded tonight to either the Los Angeles Lakers or the Indiana Pacers, who are playing each other in the finals of the league's very first in-season tournament. The novelty comes from soccer, where teams often compete in several tournaments throughout the season in addition to league play. There were a lot of skeptics at first, but the tournament has been drawing fans, and the NBA players have decided to take it seriously. So what should we make of the results in the experiment? And just as importantly, as always, how much would an NBA Cup matter to the legacy of Lakers great LeBron James if his team wins? We'll talk it through with Justin Tinsley. He's senior sports and culture reporter at ESPN's The Undefeated. Hey, Justin. Hey, how you doing, man? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Did you yourself start out as a skeptic or a booster of this thing? Yeah, I did at first. I I, I really remember asking myself, and I believe it was on an episode of Around the Horn. I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, what's going on here? I don't really get this. The the scheduling was confusing. And then, oh, this round you do this, this round you do that. And I'm like, man, this is way too confusing. Yeah. But once you started to see the players buy into it and then the fans bought into it, it was like, all right, well, something is different here. Like, this is actually working. It's, it's making basketball in November and early December, I think it's fair to say, relevant again, yeah. where in the past couple of years it, it just wasn't. Since this is NPR and not around the horn, unfortunately, can you just can you zoom out a little bit and catch people up who are not as familiar with what we're talking about, what this tournament is like? What was the basic concept here? As you said earlier, they got the inspiration from soccer and the various cups that they played throughout their seasons. And so with the NBA, this in-season tournament is basically for a month. It started in November 3rd and obviously concludes tonight, uh, December 9th in Las Vegas. And what this is. There's six groups of five, three per conference, and each team plays everybody in their conference. And the team with the best record from each group advances to the knockout round. And all of these games are single elimination. And all of these games count towards the regular season. The only game that doesn't count towards regular season stats is actually the championship game, the game tonight between the Indiana Pacers and the Los Angeles Lakers. So, if somebody happens to break Wilt Chamberlain's record tonight of 101 points, <laughs> it won't count for their scoring average, unfortunately. Too bad. <laughs> I mean, let's talk a little bit about tonight's uh, championship. This is kind of the best-case scenario for the league, right? You've got LeBron and the Lakers 
but also this Pacers team led by young star Tyrese Halliburton, who is the type of person we would not be caring that much about on national TV in any other sense, but he's just been on fire this whole tournament and getting a ton of attention. Yeah, and as you said, this is the best thing that happened for the league. And obviously, we can get into LeBron, and I'm sure we will, LeBron and the Lakers. But I'll focus on the Indiana Pacers just for right now. You know, Tyrese Halliburton, if you're a basketball nut, you know that Tyrese Halliburton had a lot of skill, and this guy was going to be a special player. But the end-season tournament has pretty much just been his coming-out party, nationally at least. And as you said, I think this is great for a star like him. This is Indiana, not always known as like the landing spot for for big-time free agents. But Tyrese Halliburton said the other day, and I saw Woj on ESPN talking about it, he was basically saying Tyrese Halliburton is using this in-season tournament as an audition to tell other superstar players like, hey, look, we are building something special here in Indiana. And if you like to shoot, come play with me because I will make sure you get shots because I love to pass the ball. Yes, I'm averaging 28 points a game, but I'm also leading the entire league in assists. So this is a superstar coming out to the entire country and the entire country is like, okay, well, Indiana needs to be on TV more because this is the product we need to be watching that. And that is directly a product of the in-season tournament. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go now to the black hole of gravity that every conversation about the NBA pulls you toward, right? The inevitable LeBron, Michael Jordan (laughs) conversation. I mean, if LeBron wins tonight, if he has this NBA cup on his resume, how much, if at all, do you think that matters on the head-to-head comparison that will never stop between the two of them? Oh, it doesn't matter at all. Because see, here's the (laughs) thing. When you talk about LeBron and Mike, the people who are on Mike's side are solidly on Mike's side. The people who are on LeBron's side are solidly on LeBron's side. So you really can't move the needle. It just gives us another talking point to talk about. But I I think it's incredible. I think it's amazing. I think it's great for basketball to see the way that LeBron has attacked this in-season tournament. Because if he's playing like this, it's going to energize so many other players around the league to be like, maybe I need to, you know, give this my best shot too. And the fans around the world are seeing LeBron basically played the way he has been this entire in-season tournament, especially that last game against the New Orleans Pelicans, where he just had one of the best games of his career in year 21. He was, he was dropping three-pointers from, like, almost half court. It was wild to watch. Yeah, he was putting up from the logo. Yeah. He scored 30 points in 23 minutes, which was the quickest and most efficient 30-point game of his career. And this guy started in October of 2003. <laughs> Listen, I'm the exact same age as LeBron James, so I appreciate old people like us doing doing well out there. Um, hey, I'm I'm right in that same age bracket with you yeah, all. <laughs> representing representing the old millennials. <laughs> that is Justin Tinsley of ESPN's The Undefeated talking about the NBA in season tournament, which culminates tonight when the Lakers play the Pacers in Las Vegas. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. This year, NPR, along with member stations, has been marking the 50th anniversary of hip hop. One of those stations, KEXP in Seattle, has been celebrating with a weekly podcast, 50 Years of Hip Hop. In each episode, host Larry Mizell Jr. and his team highlight a different year of the music's history. They've jumped around the timeline from 1973 to today, picking certain songs or moments from each year, exploring hip hop's origins and its continued evolution. In this episode chronicling 1977, KEXP contributor Dusty Henry takes a look at the groundbreaking innovation by 12-year-old Theodore Livingston, a.k.a. Grand Wizard Theodore. The young DJ quite literally stumbled upon a technique that would change hip-hop forever. Scratching. 
Like most 12-year-olds, Livingston loved playing records loud in his bedroom. And like most parents, his mother scolded him from the other room to turn it down. On one particular day back in 1975, Theodore was playing the incredible bongo band's Apache. As he reached over to pause the record to hear what his mom was saying, Theodore accidentally moved the record playing back and forth. The sound piqued his interest, so he did it again, and again. Theodore spent days on end experimenting with this new sound that he, quite literally, stumbled upon. Something we now know today as scratching. But let's go back a little further for just a minute. We're talking about the 1970s here, the earliest days of hip-hop. Theodore was acutely aware of what was going on. His older brother, who went by the name Mean Gene, was entrenched in the bubbling hip-hop phenomenon. Gene was also close friends and a creative partner with another future legend of hip-hop, Grandmaster Flash. A child is born with no state of mind, blind to the ways of mankind. God is smiling on you, but he's frowning too, because only God knows what you'll go through. Gene and Flash picked up on Theodore's natural DJ abilities early on and took the preteen under their wings. Theodore joined his mentors to dig through crates full of vinyl in downtown Manhattan. They'd spend their days searching for new records that they could play before anyone else. Rolling Stones. Aerosmith. The incredible bongo band. Anything with a danceable beat that they could get to first. At this point, Flash and other DJs were famously performing in parks and abandoned buildings. Huge block parties with massive speakers, loud music, and the earliest forms of breakdancing. And our hero Theodore had a front row seat. He, Mean Gene, and their other brother, DJ Cordio, formed their own group, the L Brothers. And they began performing in the parks, too. And you say, tomorrow the L Brothers will be at Rock City on 159th Street at Prospect. $2 for everybody, 12 o'clock. During this time, Flash was making huge innovations to DJing. People often credit Cool Herc for starting hip-hop in 1973 by playing only the danceable breaks and records to keep the party going. After perfecting Herc's breakbeat technique, Flash took it to the next level. Here's Flash speaking in a documentary about his first groundbreaking method. Uh, I had come up with a mixing technique, which I called the Quick Mix Theory, where I was able to take two copies of the same record on two, on, you know, on two different turntables and repeat the climatic part of the record over and over and over and over and over again. Flash also developed clock theory. That's his method of identifying a certain segment of record he liked so he could punch in back and forth on his turntables to create a new continuous beat. Just the very act of putting his hands on the record was revolutionary, something that was considered faux pas among DJs. I wouldn't recommend doing it with your record collection either, unless you're a professional DJ, that is. Crossfaders didn't go from left to right. So when Theodore was sitting in his bedroom and started moving his records back and forth, he was unwittingly building on Flash's technique. Theodore spoke with Hot 97 back in 2014 about the moment he discovered scratching. So when she startled me, both 
both crossfaders went up in the air, which means that I could hear both records at the same time. So what I did was I did a baby scratch, pulled the music down a little bit. She left the room, played the next record, um, finished my cassette tape, and when I rewinded back to the part where my mother came in the room, I can hear myself baby scratching. I was like, wow, I can incorporate that into all the other things that I do as a DJ. So I practiced it another couple of days, another couple of hours, different records, and, and that's when it became the scratch. I was 12 years old in 1975. You see, Flash's quick mix and clock theories were all about fluidity. Theodore's new scratching technique was rough and jagged. Rhythmically scratching on his records started to develop a new sound. In 1977, the 14-year-old Theodore debuted as Grand Wizard Theodore and began performing his scratching technique for the first time at the Sparkle Club. His song of choice? Apache by the Incredible Bongo Band. The song he first accidentally scratched to when his mom told him to turn down the music. Here's a rare clip recorded on the cassette of Theodore scratching the next year in 1978 with L Brothers at the Bronx River Center. As we'll undoubtedly repeat throughout this series, it's difficult to attribute specific people or specific dates and times in the origins of hip-hop. Or any genre, for that matter. Grand Wizard Theodore certainly might not be the first person to jostle a record back and forth on the needle, but he was the first we know of to recognize its potential. He continued his studies under Grandmaster Flash, who took to the scratching technique and arguably began to perfect it. You hear it all over Flash's seminal track, The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. <laughs> Scratching continued to evolve over the years under the fingertips of artists like DJ Scratch, DJ Premier, DJ Jazzy Jeff, and DJ Qbert, just to name a few. Like most art forms, the story of hip-hop gives us some of the clearest examples of watching an idea be born and evolve. There's no barrier for entry to start innovating. A young kid being told to turn down his music by his mom sparked a revolution for a whole genre and culture. And it's not just a freak incident either. Grand Wizard Theodore's persistence to follow his music and chase down an idea changed the game. Beyond just hip-hop, it's inspiration to follow your muse when it shows itself. You never know what it might create next. That was Dusty Henry digging into the story of Grand Wizard Theodore and the invention of scratching for KEXP's 50 Years of Hip Hop podcast. You can find the entire series on KEXP.org with episodes on everything from Jay-Z and Nas to MF Doom to the story of an early female hip hop pioneer, MC Light, who found fans among Chuck D, Sinead O'Connor, and a U.S. president. She became the first female rapper to perform at the White House for President Barack Obama. <laughs> Who would have thought that hip hop would ever be heard in this room? Most definitely, it did not start in such a fancy place. Hear them all at kexp.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's the holiday season, and for many Americans, that means an intense period full of family gatherings. 
But what if those old family traditions don't really cut it anymore? Life Kit's Marielle Seguera has some tips for us on how to make them your own. A lot of the time when our traditions don't work anymore, it's because we don't see the meaning behind them. Or that meaning doesn't resonate with us. So, for instance, maybe I wanted a new tradition because the other ones felt empty or they felt too consumerist and everybody was spending, you know, hundreds of dollars on these holiday gifts and they just get forgotten about after a couple of months. That's Andrea Bonnier. She's a psychologist with a podcast called Baggage Check, Mental Health Talk and Advice. So a good place to start when you're dreaming up new traditions is to ask yourself, what do you want them to mean? Like, what will this holiday or event be about? Is it about giving back to others? If so, you could volunteer at a food bank with your family every few months. Is it about gratitude? Why not go around the table at dinner and say what you're grateful for? Is it about finding the light in the darkness? Then you could go on a hike with your family or friends on the day of the winter solstice. Or let's say your family really values laughter and play. You could start a monthly game night. And every new participant has to have their photo taken wearing a leopard print Snuggie. And now we have this connection. And it's silly to outsiders, but it brings us a sense of togetherness and comfort. Something else to consider as you create traditions is what's missing in your life, or even what was missing when you grew up. Ehime Ora is a spiritual educator based in New York. When you look at your childhood, what felt the most empty for you? What felt like you couldn't have that or it didn't feel enough? And that is really like the hints of creating these newer, better traditions for yourself. Let's say you felt lonely, like your family wasn't part of a community or you never really gathered with folks to celebrate. As an adult, you might decide to join a weekly class. That's a tradition, too. I'm currently doing pottery, ceramics, and I connect with the people who are also in this classes as me. We laugh about, you know, how our clay cups, pots, or whatever are looking messed up. Maybe you take it even further and host a monthly potluck with your pottery friends. Or you gather folks for a party on Pie Day. That's March 14th. It's a math joke. And everybody brings a pie. Your traditions don't have to be tied to the big holidays. Now, when the day of your new tradition arrives, be ready for the emotions that might come up. I mean, yeah, it might feel thrilling and fun and freeing, but also if your new tradition is a replacement for a long-standing one. It's common to have those bouts of loneliness, those bouts of doubt, regret, or even these bouts of unworthiness as well. Like, who am I now without the old traditions? It's a kind of grief. So be kind to yourself. And Andrea Bonnier says, don't put too much pressure on this new event. It doesn't have to be this magical thing. But we really need to observe ourselves. What have I internalized about how perfect this is supposed to be? Because I might have such rigid expectations that I'm making myself miserable. Remember, this is supposed to be fun. And if it's not, you're allowed to stop doing it. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. 
Thanks for being with us. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. There's a flood watch in effect from tomorrow afternoon through Monday evening for heavy rain, as much as two to three inches possible. News. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by Zoo New England, immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. And The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, the Tony Award-winning musical about surprise connections, shared humanity, and love of music. Coming to the Boston stage for the first time ever, from now through December 10th, at The Huntington Theater. Tickets at huntingtontheater.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The State Department has bypassed Congress to send 14,000 rounds of tank ammunition to Israel. This after the U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council draft resolution yesterday calling for an immediate ceasefire as well as the unconditional release of all hostages. The Texas Supreme Court has temporarily blocked a lower court decision on Friday that allowed a Texas woman to get an emergency abortion pending more time to consider the case. And baseball's Shohei Ohtani has signed a record 10-year, $700 million deal with the Los Angeles Dodgers. He's 29 years old. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. A long time ago, November 1978 to be exact, instead of episodes of The Incredible Hulk and Wonder Woman, CBS aired a holiday special that was, well, totally out of this world. The Star Wars Holiday Special. That's right, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher all appeared in their roles as Luke, Han Solo, and Leia. But there were guest stars, too. People like B. Arthur were there. There was singing and dancing. There were skits. George Lucas had authorized the Star Wars holiday special. But, as you could possibly tell from that description, he hated it. It never aired again, and instead it became a beloved bootleg passed around from fan to fan. Now a documentary called A Disturbance of the Force looks back at the special, talking to some of the famous fans who love it and the people who made it, and it asks the key questions, why, how did this ever happen, and others. Linda Holmes of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour joins us now to cover this strange territory. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. I know you are a Star Wars guy. I am, and I can still remember like the first time I came across clips of this on like the GeoCities era internet, and just thinking, like, yep. What is going on? Like, what? What is this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did this special become become so legendary? 
Well, in the documentary, there are a bunch of guys who are Star Wars people like uh, Patton Oswalt and Weird Al Yankovic and other kind of famous nerds. And they talk about how the fact that they never released this on any kind of home video officially made it feel sort of forbidden. Yeah. So having a copy of it uh, or even really knowing about it was a currency among fans. But I do think that also it would not be as famous as it is if it were not as as weird as it is. And for those who have not had the delight of watching clips of this, how would you quantify the weirdness of this, of, of this special? <laughs> I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, the weirdness is a, at least a 12 or 13. Yeah. Uh, the the story in the special, to the degree there is one, is about Chewbacca trying to get back to his home planet to celebrate something called Life Day with his family. And they basically just hang a bunch of skits on that frame. So, for example, Chewbacca's wife tries to follow along as a TV chef, who's sort of a Julia Child type with forearms, makes Bantha surprise. Now, today... I'm going to be using the tenderest cut of the bantha, the loin. The loin is very tasty and serves four nicely. But of course, if your family has a hearty appetite, I would suggest then that old popular holiday favorite, the bantha rump. The chef is played by Harvey Corman, and it's just, it's entirely comedic, but it's just kind of goofy. But I, I would have to say, I have to, I have to defend as the weirdest part, uh, Chewbacca's father, whose name is Itchy, Putting on a virtual reality helmet and watching a kind of sensual presentation by Diane Carroll, who they explain in the documentary replaced the original choice, who was Cher. There is no other way to say it. It seems like Diane Carroll is trying to turn Itchy on, and you're not going to believe me, so I do have tape. Oh, yes. I can feel my creation. <laughs> I'm getting your message. Are you getting mine? Oh my God, I forgot. I forgot <laughs> about this particular detail. Like, yeah. It's quite <laughs> odd. It's quite odd. I mean, like the people who made Star Wars had some high quality, you know, ideas. But then this happened. Like, who was like, you know what? This is going well. I like this script. Well, what they say in the documentary is that Star Wars had come out in 1977 and been this enormous hit. But now it was 1978 and there was some concern at Lucasfilm and elsewhere that people would forget all about it before the next movie came out. Because this is kind of before Star Wars was what Star Wars is now. Right. So who knows if they're going to care by the time the second movie comes out. They also saw an opportunity to sell toys to kids at holiday time. Because now you're, you know, a year and a half after the movie, you remind everybody how much they liked these characters. Still, though, how did, how did it get so goofy? Well, one of my favorite parts of the documentary is there's a rundown of what variety specials looked like in the 1970s in general. And mm -hmm. the fact that at the time, this wasn't all that unusual a format. In fact, Star Wars had had a segment on Donnie and Marie, of course, was Donnie and Marie Osmond, the world's most wholesome brother and sister who had their own show. And that segment on their show is a lot stranger than the holiday special. Raiders, 
Yeah. So there were a lot of specials and variety shows just getting kind of thrown out there. So the people who produced this special kind of came from that world, from the variety special world. And they say that George Lucas mostly tapped out and didn't participate very much in putting it together. So it's really a variety show thing and not a Star Wars thing. And he learned a very important lesson and then didn't let anybody else contribute to the prequels. And he overlearned that lesson. Um. I mean, I, I assume it's one of the steps on his path to being to, you know, controlling the, the franchise the way he did for such a long time. Yeah, but but that gets to the, the broader second and third life of this thing is that it happened and then George Lucas just 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 disowned it. Right. There, there's no other way to put it. Right. Right. And I think if he hadn't done that, it might not have become as big as it is. It kind of developed this this what doesn't George Lucas want you to see quality. Uh, Is it out there in the wilds of the Internet? Of course, yes. But just like those VHS tapes, those are bootlegs. So in a world where it seems like everybody releases everything, anything that seems a little bit like somebody doesn't want you to see it has a, a special charm. Yeah. I mean, you, you are a critic. Uh, Do you think... The Star Wars Holiday Special is worth trying to track down and watch for yourself if you haven't seen it. You know, I I personally tried. I did. But a lot of it is is just really boring. At the beginning, Chewie's family is just wookieing around their treehouse. And they're just doing the wookie noise that I'm not going to try to do. <laughs> And there aren't any subtitles, so you're just trying to figure it out from context clues. And this goes on for nine minutes. So I can't recommend the special, but I do recommend the documentary, which has a ton of clips and and will get you the highlights. I just want people listening to know that the script here has a note in brackets. The Wookieeing Around is at about 5530. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just me making sure that you guys know where to find the Wookieeing around in the documentary. Just, just doing the careful production that did not happen on the Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> the documentary is a disturbance in the force, and you can rent it on demand from most of your online outlets. Linda, thank you for this really critical, important conversation. Thank you, Scott. May the force be with you, obviously. <laughs> In case you don't recognize that famous high note, it's Mariah Carey in a social media video she dropped on November 1st this year. In the video, she breaks out of a frozen vault wearing a skin-tight red Santa outfit to let us know it's time for... All I Want for Christmas is You. For so many people in recent decades, it's become the Christmas song. And it's climbed to the top of the Billboard Hot 100 every single year since 2019. But there's another holiday classic that's been nipping at Mariah's heels for years. Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. Brenda Lee's 1958 hit, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. This year, her record label went all in to finally push the song to number one. There was a new music video with a cameo from Trisha Yearwood and Tanya Tucker. And Lee got a TikTok account at 78 years old. Hello, Brenda Nators. Grandmother is here. It worked. This week, 65 years after its release, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree topped the Billboard Hot 100 for the very first time. You will get a sentimental feeling when you We 
talked with Brenda Lee about how it feels to get a piece of the Queen of Christmas crown and to ask her about a career that was much bigger than a single seasonal hit. I feel like I need to start the interview by saying congratulations. You did it. You're number one. Well, you know what? That is still not connecting with my brain. I'm just so thrilled for the writer. I was very close to the writer, Johnny Marks, and I, I wish he was here to to witness uh, all this, but it's a great song. It's a wonderful song, and Lord, has it been good to me. I never thought that a Christmas song would be my signature song, but yeah. it is, and I'm proud of it. You know, there's always a moment to me every November where I'm in the store and I hear a Christmas song for the first time and I think, oh, all right, it's Christmas season. I'm wondering, do you have a moment each year where you hear yourself in a store or out there when you hear rocking around the Christmas tree for the first time for the season? And what does that feel like? It still feels pretty surreal. It really does. And, and when I say that, people say, oh, Brenda, good Lord, that thing came out when you were 12 or 13 or <laughs> however old you were. I said, but you know what? It never gets old. Can we go back to, to when you first recorded it? Because you just mentioned right there you were 13 when the song came out. And I think this this latest generation of fans have been surprised to learn you were so young because your voice sounds so full in the recording. You do not sound like a 13-year-old. I mean, what, what, what was going on in your life at that time? What do you remember about going into the recording studio and recording this song? Well, I remember that my great producer, Owen Bradley... He had the air conditioning turned to zero because we, we recorded it, of course, in the summer. And he had a Christmas tree up and, and we just had a great time doing it. You know, good songs are easy to do. And I think we did that one maybe in one rehearsal and one take. You know, this this past few weeks, there's been so much attention. You've been climbing the charts. There's been this push to get this to number one. And, of course, Mariah Carey is the other singer who, in recent years, has been uh, so identified with the number one Christmas hit. Have Have you and her had any conversation in recent weeks, I'm, I'm wondering? No, but I'd love to. I love Mariah. I, I'm yeah. a big fan. Her Christmas song is great. You know, there's room for all of us. And yeah. if it's good, it's everything. So I well, I listen to both of you a lot around this time of year. So I appreciate you both. I as bet well. I bet you do. I bet you get tired of us. No, not 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 for another few weeks. <laughs> well, that's big of you. Thank you so much. <laughs> you mentioned before. You are totally fine with the fact that this is the song that is in people's minds. But uh, I wanted to talk about the rest of your career, uh, if you're up for it for a few minutes. Absolutely. There's an anecdote that's floated around a lot of the profiles that mentions that there was one point in time where the Beatles opened for you. That's exactly right. I used to work with the guys when I first started going to England, touring over there. 
and just loved them. I was closest, I guess, to John. Knew they were going to be huge. Brought back a little acetate uh, that they made for me, and I took it to my record company, and I said, I need you to hear these guys, and I need you to sign them. Well, they turned them down, and of course, the next thing you know, it, it's all about the Beatles, so you just never know, but I knew they were good. A music sweet, the lights are low, playing a song on the radio. You know, you, you had success so young, and so many people who have success so young have a harder time in life. It seems like you've lived a really fulfilling, long life. It seems like things have worked out pretty well. What do you think What do you think the trick was to navigating being so famous early on in your teen years and coming out of it seemingly pretty okay? Well, I think that the greatest thing was nobody ever told me I was famous. I loved what I did. I loved singing. I loved the whole scope of the industry. And I just wanted to be a part of it. I didn't have to be number one to be happy. And I think when you can get to that place in life, in anything that you do, you're going to be successful. Of your other hits that people these days might not be as much familiar with, what's your favorite? What's one that we should make sure to include in this segment? Well, you need to include I'm Sorry. I'm sorry, so sorry that I was such a fool. The early stuff, because that, that's really how I cut my teeth and learned what I was doing. I appreciate the songwriters that brought them to me. I appreciate the great A-team, the musicians, because they were like my big brothers and the Anita Kerr singers. It's just listening to all these great guys do their thing and share their talent with me. Love was blind and I was too blind to see. And it just don't get any better than that. Well, Brenda Lee, I've got to say, I get a sentimental feeling every time I hear your song. And it was truly wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Merry